Hey there, Powder Cake fans. Nick here from the Powder Cake team, and this is episode 104 of Powder Cake Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas outside of Silicon Valley. Today, we're revisiting an old episode where Matt spoke with Scott Hill. Scott is an entrepreneur and the co-founder of Perk, which is an Indianapolis-based high-growth marketing technology company that empowers businesses with more visibility into their digital marketing efforts and sales. And Scott shows what it takes to be a visionary leader, having succeeded at it himself at Perk, where he guided the company as it made a huge transition, which you'll hear more about in the episode. He'll explain not only how he did it, but help you to understand what it'll take for you to do the same. This interview is from all the way back in August 2017, and we're bringing it out of the archives because it's so packed with great advice, and it's one of our most popular episodes. So let's get started. But Scott, thanks so much for being here. No problem. Um, we, we, I have a ton of questions for you, so okay. it's going to be hard for me to stay on point. Yep. Um, we got started a little bit late, but I, I wanted to kind of start by just going way back. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you kind of had this entrepreneurial DNA probably your whole life. Uh, do you remember your first entrepreneurial memory? The first time there was sort of like some inklings. Maybe you didn't even know it at the time, but uh, that might indicate you were going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, I don't have any of the classic stories of that I was starting a business when I was nine years old or selling something and making money and doing all that. Um, I definitely, looking back, see the parts to where I was always kind of lazy. <laughs> and good at getting other people to do things. Um, so I could always talk my parents into letting me go do something. Um, and then I was always a person that was kind of organizing games and uh, making the games better as we played them, coming up with rules and um, different ways to be able to make it more enjoyable and fun. But um, like what re- kind of game? Um, we're not diving in that game, are we? <laughs> um, I definitely had a, a game that we um, had a little survivor kind of piece to it where you put... Uh, $20 into the pool, and then we've had a little kind of Nerf gun kind of um, game. This is like you know, 14 years old or something. And then the survivor got to keep all the money. Only the game never ended, but I had all the money. So <laughs> I, I won. It's um, your seed capital. I won. It's seed capital for the business. Um, but really, my first entrepreneur memory was uh, really the kind of when I had the idea for the business. I had it knowing that I kind of wanted to go in that direction, but I never really had anything that was like, oh, this is what I'm going to go do and make money or had five other ways I was trying to do something like that until went and did the business. How, how old were you at the time when you had that initial idea for what uh, became Perk? I was 24. 24? Yeah. That's pretty young. Yeah, it, it was when I look back well, on it. Why, you, why were you... It didn't s- seem young at the time, honestly. It just seemed like... Well, your well, life is flashing I'm, before I'm your eyes. I'm definitely going to do this. <laughs> Waiting any longer would be silly. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, did, were you looking for a company to start or was it sort of like you saw the opportunity and you were like, this needs to be a company? I knew that um, I'd been reading Rockefeller, uh, Rockefeller's book, and I just thought that that was just amazing. What a life he got to live on being able to be totally in control and play this game and make these moves. And at the time in my career, I was really enjoying some of the moves I was making within the business, but was also starting to run into, well, you know, I, I kind of feel trapped at times wanting to do some of these things. So kind of the, the inspiration of Rockefeller collided with all of a sudden seeing an idea, and it was immediately like, this is... As soon as I had the idea, it was, this is my out. Um, I can go start a business on this. And so pretty much as soon as I saw the opportunity, oh, I can do this, I mentally quit my job on the spot and then uh, um, started working on getting the business going. And that's something you can do when you're 24 and, you know, you uh, don't have some of uh, 
life's obligations hadn't quite found me yet to where it's like, I wasn't that far removed from making ramen, you know, ramen and a hundred dollars a month last from college. So I could fall back into making that, uh, making that work again, to be able to, uh, give myself some runway to be able to get a business going. That's awesome, man. I, I think there's a lot of stories I could dive into on the, the early days, but I, the main thing I wanted to get into in this conversation is sort of what I see as one of your superpowers, if not like your most powerful superpower, which is sort of like that visionary superpower and trait that you have. Mm-hmm. And clearly here as a CEO of Perk um, has driven a lot of the innovation over the last several years and all the way back to the beginning, it was just a different kind of innovation. Mm-hmm. And so I've talked to you a little bit about this here and there, but it'd be weird if I just like interviewed you when we're grabbing beers or lunch. So I'm going to use this opportunity to All just right. grill you with questions. Is that cool? Yep. Visionary. You have this ability. Can it's, I stop you right there first? Yeah. So visionary. Yeah. It's a weird. It's a weird title, right? It's a weird title. Yep. Um, so I like to stop there talking about superpower and visionary. I think when people talk about the word visionary, it starts seeming like that there's some sort of unique kind of thing there that enables somebody to be able to see the future. That's kind of like glorified and while this person's been successful, they were able to see stuff before it. That piece of it that somebody has tremendous success on because of seeing something in the future before other people did is not something that they were just blessed with. It is a skill that was developed and harnessed and worked on no different than being a great electrician or a great plumber. So it is something that there might be some raw capability there, but it only becomes valuable if it is continued, learned from, worked on, processed, and made happen. Whereas when we give the word visionary to it, it just seems like something that somebody was just lucky enough to be able to work, to be able to have, and is able to go and have it. It's uh, something that is continually strive to be able to get better at, um, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of mistakes and being wrong about what you thought you saw to be able to start getting better at what you end up seeing. So, so you don't see this necessarily as something that's just like either you got it or you don't. I don't believe so. If there are some traits that are a little bit more like you're born with a tendency. Yeah, sure. Um, what are some of those skills that a visionary has? I mean, you may have already alluded to this a little bit with the sales comment. So I, mean, I definitely think that there's, you know, everybody has their unique kind of talents and skill sets that they are born with. Um, but then it's the cultivating them that, you know, you choose to let some things that you might be better at go in order to be able to focus on some other strengths that you choose um, to develop. So I think that everybody has a little bit of capability of being visionary in them. And then some people might have a capability to be able to become better at it. But it is that work and um, work and focus on it uh, in order to be able to get better. Um, but I think have an imagination. Mm-hmm. Um Ability to dream, um, comfort, and dreaming. Um, I think a lot of people don't allow themselves to kind of really spend a lot of time in the what could be. Hmm. Um, it can become terrifying um, at times because it sets expectations of what could be when sometimes it's easier to stay in, well, this is what really is. And if I think too much about what could be, I'll just become disappointed in what is. Or it may cause me to have to stretch myself out of my comfort zone in order to be able to take what is and turn it into what could be. And so I think that a lot of times it becomes more comfortable just to stay in what is. And I've fallen, myself, I've fallen at times into that trap as well. Um, so How do you I, get out of those traps? Those two in particular, the comparing now to what could yeah. be and then the... Well, what was the second one? The second one was more what is sort of... just what is compared to what could be. Yeah. Um, so I, you constantly having to push yourself of that. I believe that you can do anything you set your mind to. Um, what do you want your life and world to look like in the future? And then how much are you spending time and actually truly feeling like you know the answer to this is what I want 
my life to look and feel like? And then what do I need to do to start working in order to be able to have that happen? As opposed to, this is what my life looks and feels like now. And we'll find out what it may be five years down the road. We'll find out what it may be in 10 years. I like to think about what do I want to feel and look like five or 10 years down the road and live and think in that kind of term. And then now back up to now and start thinking about what is it that I need to do in order to be able to help make that be possible. I don't want that to be confused on saying too much in the future and not enjoying the present, but I think that it takes a little bit of both in order to be able to uh, keep reaching, setting goals, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and trying to find ways in order to make uh, new and exciting things happen. And then when those new exciting things happen, I'm sure I'll, you know, like, okay, well, what else can we do from, do from here? Well, in terms of pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, mm-hmm. do you remember a time during your entrepreneurial journey personally where you encountered a challenge that was sort of like took the breath out of you and you had to pause for a second and be like, whoa, like this isn't just normal business challenge. This is something that could be like a serious problem. Yeah, sure. Uh, the recession, um, we got out of our... 2008. Yeah, 2008, 2009-ish, yeah. We got out of our, over our skis before that recession even happened on the business was beyond Andy, my partners, and my ability to be able to lead the company. Um, Can you give me a uh, idea of what the size of the company was Yeah, we was probably about like time? 90 people at the time is what it can kind of gotten to. And we were growing very rapidly. But around 2006-ish, I would say, um, I ceased knowing where the business should go or what it could do. And I got a little bored. Um, and that's like, if, as an entrepreneur, if you're bored within a company that's doing that, it's you're bored for one reason. You don't know where the next level in the game to go is. Mm. And I didn't. It was like, okay, well, now I have all this momentum. We're growing like crazy. Now where do I take it? And, uh, you know, we had to go through the recession, you know, unfortunately was ill-timed to make that experience painful, but it certainly probably sped up um, the process of, downsizing and house cleaning that um, took us back down to a core foundation that we then start we're starting to be able to work from but it was extremely painful to go through that time period because really when you're going in reverse there's no time to be thinking about what's in front of you in the future because you're constantly having to be looking in your rear view mirror <laughs> as you're because you're backing up from where you intended you thought you would be I, I want to ask you more questions about that, but but first, I'd love to talk. Yeah, it sounds a lot of, like a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun there, <laughs> which means there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Sure. I know you did. The piece around getting bored, mm-hmm. it seems like that's almost like the kryptonite to the visionary. And not, again, to position a visionary as a superhero, mm-hmm. but sure. if that's your role in the company, it's almost like boredom is the thing you want to avoid mm-hmm. at all costs. Although I, there maybe there are some times in the business when a visionary should, should be bored. Yep, yep. Uh, what's what's your kind of position on that? Yeah, I think the only time I'd say bored um, wasn't I was bored because I was blind. So if your job is to be visionary in a company <laughs> and you're blinded during that time, um, that's what ended up causing the boredom is that I couldn't see or be excited about where the business could go because I really didn't know where to take it or what to do. So I had to get to work and try to figure that out. Um, but we had also achieved things so fast and beyond what I even kind of could have envisioned when we first got going. I, you know, I probably got a little complacent. Um, you know, just little things made me blinded during that part to it. So, but to your other counterpoint, there are times when the business has a steady strategy. The founder has put a vision in place where the strategy is working, and you have extreme clarity. At that point, a tendency and a weakness of um, visionaries um, can be seeing too much opportunity and so m- too many places they can go. And it's that constant of saying, it doesn't matter what else I might be able to see if we don't execute what we were intending to do. 
Now, at times you might have to pivot and adjust a little bit, but that is different than becoming distracted and constantly moving one step forward on 10 different things versus moving 10 steps forward on one critical thing that you focused on and saying, out of everything that I see that we could do, this is the one thing that we need to go focus on and get done now. And if we do that, then we can start focusing on these other opportunities. And I think that um, having gone through a little bit of this business cycle um, enough now, I have enough trust in myself and in the future to know just because I give up on a couple opportunities now to go chase this one, it used to be that fear of, but uh, I, these are there. We could go do it. There will be some other opportunities five years down the road when we get this thing built that will be right there as well. An entrepreneur um, usually is not you know, ever out of ideas that they could go pursue. So what is the one that you're going to go focus in on? And what is the one piece within that idea you need to execute on in order to be able to turn it into reality? Well, I know one of the strengths that you've had here at Perk is having Andy, mm -hmm. your co-founder, and the guy who you might be called the integrator uh, of sorts of, of Perk to balance out the visionary role that you tend he, to... He's certainly the of. pragmatic. Yeah, he's, he's a little more pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you talk to me about why, um, how that's been helpful and what some of the challenges have been along the way as you've developed that relationship? Yeah, it's certainly been helpful. And, um, you know, I was college roommates with Andy. Um, and so we were just talking about it a couple of days ago to somebody, you know... Um, can I get a good Andy co yeah, college story? I'm the messy one. I mean, I don't even have an office because I know it looked like a disaster after a period of time. So I was always the messy one, the scatterbrained, you know, kind of slightly crazy guy. And um, so our closet that we shared was we had a walk-in closet because we had the idea to tear down our three separate closets and turn that into a walk-in closet <laughs> purely so we could have an awesome aquarium in the wall for our, our room. And so we're sharing now a closet and my clothes were just all on the floor which my two roommates just had to get used to just walking over uh -huh. <laughs> to get to their and Andy's were like hung up absolutely perfect right I like joked pressed. I choked he had it like you know by the day laid out and so when it came to time to look actually looking at a, a business partner um, I knew what he was doing within his career and I also knew that okay at the core we've already he's already seen the worst of me in terms of organization and wow I really could use somebody as we build this business that likes to hang up their clothes and stay very organized <laughs> um, so I was looking for that uh, early on and um, Andy has continued to develop his skill set to where he has become an amazing um, person on organizing and organizing a company uh, accountability execution um, which really uh, we both over time of being partners together for like 16 17 years now we have some overlap on skills for sure but over time the overlap has even gotten less as it's enabled us to both go focus in on our core strengths knowing I can check in with you know he can check in with me on a couple things and help make the strategy and the vision kind of piece better and I can check in with him to help you know, work on some of the, th assist him on some of the things. But for the most part, um, we've really have developed our strengths and been able to focus on those because we had somebody else that uh, um, we could rely on to not necessarily have to cover and work on our weakness. I find this really fascinating because you talk about investing in your core strengths as co-founders. What are those strengths and how do you sharpen the skills of a visionary? My core strength has always been, been able to have a hunch as to what people might need and then being able to go figure out whether um, whether that was true and then figuring out whether people would buy it and then figuring out how to be able to get it scaled in a process in which other people can that we can hire in can take that concept and communicate it to where it can enable to be effectively sold. 
And so I where, where do you think that hunch comes from? So I have yet to find an entrepreneur that comes up with an idea that isn't somewhat within the environment they're currently within. So if I do a business plan or pitch contest that's from college, 75, 80% of them will be around how to in, improve something that was in their high school, their college, or some summer job they had. Usually um, ideas for entrepreneurs come from within a company they were working or from a friend they were speaking to or a hobby. So I think it's really just putting yourself out within the environment that you're wanting to um, spend more time in, that you have a passion in, and being around it. And then if you are an entrepreneur, um, you will see the opportunity of saying, I think I could make money off of that by providing this and that people will give me money in some form um, by making that better in their life. And I'd say that piece is one of the parts that um, I don't know where that comes from. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of skills that have to be sharpened in order to be able to do that more effectively. Being able to have a hunch of, I think people would be entertained by this or want to buy this, um, but I've always seemed to have a part of that, see where somebody might have something missing or want to be added to their life if they just knew about it. And so then the skill ended up coming to where finding out how I'm wrong 90% of the time um, to then focus in on the ones that matter. The focus and the collection of these thoughts, do you keep it all in here or are you putting those down somewhere? Um, I'd say that in the earlier part, it is, it's not even really something that you can kind of actually like list out. It is a living, breathing thing that continues to just grow and change and adapt as you have an idea and then you start talking to people about mm. it. There is a time that where you want to start actually getting clear around messaging and pitch where you start writing things down and kind of playing around and testing with it. Um, what does that process look like for you? On the messaging? Yeah. Are, uh, are you writing it down extremely, physically? Are you using an iPad? Um, are you in yeah, PowerPoint? I, all of it. Um, okay. Different team members um, playing around with messaging. And it's such a miserable time because it's <laughs> like you know that if you get a half hour with somebody, you could have them be excited about what you're intending to go do. Only no salesperson's ever been successful with a half hour. Let me help you understand why you should want this. Um, so figuring out how to boil that down in order to be able to get the right messaging. And it's always fun for me to talk to entrepreneurs that are in that stage and to make them feel comfortable. Like, no, let me hear it. I know it's going to suck. Yeah. Um, it's okay. Practice on me um, because it does take practice to be able to get out and what your head takes a while to communicate. Um, because as an entrepreneur, you're living in, you know, I've got 20 different things that I could be considering that could end up being able to be something that you would end up valuing and, um, you know, being able to narrow and figure out how to concisely be able to get that point across. Um, it just nothing but time and time and trial. How soon is too soon to start socializing an idea? So I think, so my six-year-old has ideas, right? Um, so I think we got to be careful here on an idea and then figuring out how to be able to make something. The only idea that's viable in business is something that can end up becoming commercially viable to where you can eventually profit from it. I think one of the best ways is to try to put yourself in your intended audience's shoes as much as you possibly can. Mm. So I find that the more I can understand their role and their job, um, and understand, and I'm speaking more to B2B, right? So the more I can understand what their position and what they're held accountable to and how their performance is measured and what they go through on a daily basis and start finding out what their pains are on a piece to it, then I'm going to see and have a better understanding of when I leverage my my role and my job of what I'm spending every day improving on, how can I figure out to create something that they would pay for? Um, I'll have some aha moments. And then I will take and be able to start going back to them and start finding out, 
am I moving more on the right track? Um, and so vetting those ideas within your intended audience becomes there's, it's never too early because you'll just be talking to them. And at first it's just talking like a curious um, eighth grader or a curious eight-year-old where you're just asking questions and you're getting information. And um, then you can start moving into kind of pitching, soft pitching some ideas and letting things kind of roll around. And then eventually you have to move into here's what I'm trying to sell you. Is this something interesting? Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of, I say, it's kind of a gradual process from, I'm not even sure what I am trying to yet. I'm just trying to learn from you. And you take a segment of audience and you learn from them. And then those are impossible to sell to because, you know, you've already approached them with idea kind of piece to it. It's hard to get them to see you as having something of value when you started with them where you didn't have anything. Um, but you keep moving from audience to audience and improving on your pitch to eventually where you're like, hey, I can now show up cold where they didn't even really know me or I was introduced through somebody else. And I was able to deliver a message of value and it resonated with them. And I was able to move it forward in a way that I can tell um, I'm on my path to be able to make something to where I'm eventually going to get to cash. And I say that because in the beginning part, you're looking for someone to give you money, but that probably doesn't happen in the first kind of part to it. You want an introduction or you want their time. Anything other than that is just them being nice. Um, so you want something that they're having to give up that is of value to show that you're on the right track with your idea. Otherwise, you might as well be getting an opinion from your mom who's always going to tell you, like, that's great. Yeah. Um, keep it up. What, what does that sound like it, it, at the end of your sort of pitch or socializing the mm -hmm. um, value proposition? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what does that ask come like? How, how do you make that ask at the end? Of so I'm going for the close. Okay. Um, and it just depends on what phase I'm in where I'm going for the close. Um, every, every time every you time. talk to a potential customer. Every time. And, and, and yeah, and even when it's before they even consider a potential customer, it's just something I'm getting ideas from. Um, can I come back and be able to revisit with you after I have some of this other stuff boiled down to be able to see what your opinion is? Um, I kind of like the people who are a little bit tougher, yeah. um, who I can tell that kind of sting me a little bit during the process where I can tell like, oh, this person thinks they know everything. Um, because if I can get any kind of dent with that person, then um, uh, I know I'm going to be more successful on the people who are more open-minded. Um, and that's tough to go through because they make you feel less comfortable yeah um and how do you develop a thicker skin around that getting used to it um <laughs> having a safety net it's certainly easier to be um more comfortable with it now knowing that i can mumble under my breath walking out of their office and come back into where i know i'm you know i'm the person here right um as a beginning entrepreneur you just have to believe in yourself and know it's part of the process to be able to get through but then you're asking for the close of okay well can you would you be interested in being a, a first customer trial for us yeah and the easy answer is always them for to say yes so you're looking for that time component if they're not going to give you money because you're not in a stage of charge for a product then you need time component it's like okay well for a free trial it requires you to spend six hours with us on a team to be able to be working with it and i need two members of your team to also be a part of it if they're not willing to invest in that piece of it you're not on the they're right not actually you're, sold. Not, you're not on the right track yeah if they're not the right person and they don't give you introductions easily then they're not sold into that they understand the idea and know who would be the right fit. Um, so you, you might be able to tell that, oh, okay, you actually aren't, but do you know of anybody that is? If you're on the right track with your idea, then somebody should be like, yeah, actually, I do know somebody, 
you should talk to this person. And then lastly, you're trying to move it down the cycle to where eventually you have it to where you have proof of concept to where is this something that you would pay for? And then um, if so, you try to sell it. And then if not, then you move to the free trial where it's like, okay, well, we could do this for you, but I also need this from you. And then you keep moving the steps to where eventually you don't need free trials. And now you're charging for what it is once it's built or once you have it in the case uh, to be able to be sold. It seems like these two states, like the one state or like mental state or mindset of sort of coming up with the idea and just sort of listening and perceiving. And then the state of like being in a state of like seeing the vision, selling it and maybe still listening a little bit, but Mm -hmm. it seems like those are kind of two separate mindsets. Do you see those as separate or? Yeah, for sure. You're constantly um, switching hats into this is my dream state. This is what could be to where now I'm putting on um, product marketer. Um, Now I'm coming back from my product marketers meeting and putting on my product manager hat and it's like, okay, now how do I get this put into place to where it we can work on it to be able to have it to where I can showcase a little bit better um, to then be an in salesperson mode. But as an entrepreneur, you're having to do all of those things to be able to go to market. That somebody, if it's not you as the founding entrepreneur, it's your other partner who is um, co-founder who's going and doing that. Um, because if you're not the one doing that, is something that you just can't hire out in the beginning. If you could hire it out, they would be running and doing their own startup um, right. themselves. Now, you can bring people who are kind of have entrepreneurial tendencies early on once you have some things kind of put in place if you have the budget to be able to hire that person on and work through them to where you can kind of be a part of their meetings or download with them when they get back. Um, but it is a constantly um, hat shifting kind of piece to go from idea to narrowing it down to be figuring out, okay, now I'm trying to be able to move this down the path to where eventually I want to be able to hire 10 salespeople to go sell that. That is, you know, especially an entrepreneur in your first kind of startup, that that is the job for the first, you know, several years of continuing to cultivate that. I'd like to use some real life examples if you're cool with that. Mm -hmm. I know a couple years ago, you went through a big transition, a big shift from a non-tech company to a tech company. Um, How did you go through that sort of vision state with that that particular idea? Like all the way back to like idea generation, were you like, I got to yeah. figure out how to use technology or were you sort of like... It should only take three years to talk about, so it should be fine. <laughs> no, uh, so we went through the recession. I became miserably depressed, got to the first part of just being happy to survive when we got out of it. And all of a sudden we started getting positive cash flow again. And I probably went through that too long where I wasn't even trying to think about where we could go. It was just first time ever I was an entrepreneur, just happy to be where I was, yeah. staying the as is. Um, and then I got challenged by a couple of um, talented members on the team, just kind of like, you know, hey, like, where are we going? And that really became apparent to me that, well, hey, we're back here. If I'm not setting the course of where we're going to go, people are going to leave because I'm not setting any kind of course for where we're trying to go as a company. Um, and so looking at everything, I knew that um, we weren't going to stay in print marketing. Um, as where we were going to go invest our company. And so I saw the opportunity of taking our skill sets and knowing that marketing uh, technology was still in the wild, wild west of um, its um, development. And I'm like, well, you know, surely there's an opportunity there. One of the biggest uh, messages we learned when uh, Andy and I both went through a Harvard Business School program was uh, it's the leader's job to be able to move the business into an environment where it has a better opportunity for success, that a CEO that is operating in a poor industry um, will end up with a poor reputation that the industry controls a great deal of your success. So mm. I was like, well, we have to get into this marketing software and we'll figure it out from there. So I stood in front of the company 
And, um, you know, the first step of anything, you have to kind of um, start positively sharing and believing in where you're going to go. And I said, we're going to be a marketing technology company. Well, b- before you even socialize that idea, yeah. like how, how did that all come together? Like, how did you get in the state of of getting in that future sense? Like, were you in the office doing this or did you take a sabbatical? Um, so, I mean, it was uh, so... You know, the Harvard Business School, you spend a lot of time learning and thinking um, and getting disgusted with your business um, <laughs> and uh, figuring out where it is that you want to go. So, I mean, that was probably, I mean, I, don't, I did make it kind of seem quick. I mean, that was like probably an 18 month journey yeah. of really kind of being like, this is what we're going to go do. And it's going to sound silly. It's going to sound stupid. And I don't, I'm not for sure that we're going to be able to pull it off, but I have enough faith that if we get in there, um, we'll figure out something. And, but I do know staying here isn't going to get it done. So let's at least start marching towards where there's a better opportunity and we'll figure out where to go. How did you and Andy talk that out before socializing it to the team? Or did you? Yeah, I, uh, we, we definitely always talked it out. Um, but um, definitely I would say that there's always been a part where he, he tries to filter my craziness and then settle on what might be the least crazy that we're going to go do. And um, so we had total buy-in with each other on to this is what we're going to go do and say. And we had actually literally had practice sessions where we took a video of how to talk about us being a marketing technology company and talk to our team about here's what you're going to say if you're at, and we remember the joke saying, if you're at a cocktail party, it was like, is that what it's called? We call things cocktail parties anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, so and talking about how to message because, you know, here they are selling direct mail and newspaper inserts, but yet they're going to start saying we're a marketing tech company. But that led to Mike Langelier taking over the tech point CEO role. I had plugged myself into the marketing tech um, part of Indianapolis. Um, Mike takes over the uh, tech point CEO role and um, really, here, really important organization. Here yeah, very much, very much. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for filling that in. Yeah. Um, and um, so I show up and at an event and introduce myself and tell them that we're a marketing tech company. And we had been trying, you know, developing some things, trying anyway. And um, he says, uh, that's great. And then two weeks later, he ends up needing a judge for the mirror awards. And um, he uh, needed one for the marketing tech category. And he was one judge short. And he happens to know this like 60 person, you know, uh, founder of a marketing tech company. So he invites me to judge on that. And I had no business being in that room. Sorry, Mike. Um, <laughs> but I certainly took the invitation and I was in the same room judging panel with um, Tim Kopp and uh, of Exact Target, CMO at the time. Yep. And um, Bill Godfrey, who had just sold a Primo for, you know, a very large sum. And then there was me. <laughs> so very quickly, I knew to shut up in that process. and But that's how I got introduced to Bill Godfrey. Um, and then Bill Godfrey became an advisor to us as a company. And then Bill Godfrey became an investor in the company. And we wouldn't be doing what we're doing without him really kind of helping um, get us and you know, coach us to the point to where putting some of the ideas and pieces in place, but giving access to some talent and some discipline in order to be able to make it happen. So that was the value of actually taking that stand saying we're a marketing tech company before we even were. Um, the reward for taking that risk and seeming stupid in front of my own company, as well as feeling awkward out there saying we're a marketing tech company when 99.999% of our revenue was on print marketing. Hmm. So the you, it was almost like a fake it till you make it. Absolutely. Um, and and put your vision and put yourself there until it sort of manifests? Yeah, I mean, I think that every entrepreneur is going to go through a a period of self-disbelief that they have to convince them on of, um, I am going to go make this happen when everybody else thinks it's impossible. And I think don't know if that ever 
it, it still hasn't changed for me. I'm still putting things out there of where I believe we truly can get done that I have to suspend reality to actually feel like that. Yeah, that's something that actually could be pulled off when everything is actually saying like that. Are you sure that really can get done? And sometimes it doesn't, um, but it never happens unless you're willing to actually be able to put, you know, that stake in the ground saying, this is what we're going to go do. Um, and not just kind of on the fringe say like, well, if that could happen, that would be great. Are there any people or books that have been extremely influential in you honing that sort of visionary skill set, you know, assuming that it is something that can be trained and nurtured? Yeah. Four Steps to the Epiphany by Mark. I can't believe I'm dropping his last name. He's famous. Four Steps to the Epiphany. Steve Blank? Steve Blank, yeah. Mark, yeah. Mark Steve Blank, yeah. Everyone's, um, everyone's yeah. Mark or probably, Steve. Probably, or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. probably half the stuff I've said here has been stolen from books. So um, I'm, books have been a huge part of making influence. But I'd say that's the, probably the biggest one from a um, that one I read. It was, uh, these are some things that I tend to do. But wow, here's actually a stated true discipline that is being taught in a classroom. Um, Biggest takeaway from that book? Just that there is a process? That's probably just the process piece to it, to where a lot of people think it's some kind of art. And um, there is a little bit of art to it, um, but it's really a lot of discipline and science of putting yourself and being willing to have your art go be criticized. Most artists don't like doing that. It's like, no, the art is what it is by itself, and it has meaning because it has meaning to me. That doesn't work in business. You can have the idea and you can have the concept, but you have to be willing to go through that process of being told your baby's ugly in order to uh, come out of it with something that uh, a baby everybody wants to babysit. I don't know where I'm going with that. but <laughs> It's a good metaphor. Keep, keep going, keep going. Um, uh, uh, other books or, or mentors along the way that, that were influential? Um, Think and Grow Rich, I think, is an uh, awesome book for an entrepreneur. There's, it Napoleon gets, Hill. Yeah, it gets a little uh, weird in um, the parts in today's um, world to read that. Um, so anybody who reads that know it's written like, Right after the depression, so it's good context. It's Mary, Mary, a man's world at the time where money was the only thing that mattered. They just got out of the depression, um, so when you can take take that element out of it, it was one of the first books really ever written that really kind of talked about the power of visualization and how important that is to be able to um, take and have good things happen just by being extremely clear about what you want to have occur in your life. Can you- can you talk to me about your visualization process that you've honed? Is it something that you can even describe? Yeah, no, I'm very intentional about it. So I have come this way a oh, little. Sorry, <laughs> um, I have a journal. I journal in the future. Um, so what does that mean? You journal, you time travel to the future. I do. And then you journal there. It's kind of weird, huh? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I was very specific about writing down what I want to have accomplished by the end of my life. Here, what I want my 70s and 80s to feel like that I'm I'm doing, what I want my 50s and 60s to feel like, and then what I need to accomplish now in my 40s. It's sad to say, in my 40s to be able to help make that be possible. Still look like you're 24. That's good. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I, don't, I try to dye the beard. You know. Um, um, so now that I know that I want to have what I want to have accomplished in my 40s, and that's now it's like I need to maximize the value of perk, enjoy the rewards of doing that, seeing careers, growths get developed, um, being able to see new things come to life that I'm in control of. But yeah. here's what I need to have out of it in order to keep powering the things I want to have happen. And so in order to be able to have what we need to have out of it, it becomes more clear as to, well, we need to have this take care in the business. So I'll vary from journaling from 10 years out to five years out to an, an, a year out. So the closer I get to where I know I want this to occur, and it'd probably take a year or two years out. I'll start writing a year or two years out as if it's already happened. And so in my um, journal, 
So present state. Uh, I'm writing the I'm writing the present state about the future, but I will be writing in the present state and be putting January 2019. This just happened. We were able to cross this threshold in revenue. We are now at this amount of employees. We were targeted by this potential person to look at wanting to acquire, you know, whatever it may be. Yep. Um, and so, and I'll put the date of when it's going to, when I'm writing as if I'm in the present and then I'll have sprinkled in there where I'm writing in the current and I'll put the date at which I'm writing the current. So it's always fun now. I've been doing it long enough to go back through it and be able to see like, wow, you really thought that was going to happen. You couldn't have been farther off, you know, further off from having that be the case. Um, and then there's times where it's like, oh, wow, I actually was journaling about that. And that's kind of what's, what's taken place. But I think it's, again, it's a piece of by putting out there um, what you want to have happen, the clearer you can have that. Um, the easier it seems to be to where the pieces you need in order for that to have a chance to turn into reality um, seem to find you and become um, there for you to grasp um, than if you don't get extremely clear about what you're trying to have accomplished in the future. And that's where the planning process, and you can apply the same thing to business. Um, So Andy teaches a, a class here to people in here about this visualization and planning thing. So we're both very aligned on it where, um, the same stuff you're doing in life is the same stuff you're supposed to be, what you hear doing in business. It's not the plan, it's the planning. And in your life and your goals, it's the same thing. Like, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? The mere fact of laying that out and trying to means you're probably going to be doing a lot better than if you were just drifting on it. The same way if you heard a business was not doing any planning, you probably wouldn't think that that business is probably headed anywhere too, um, too well. So that's kind of, you know, we try to borrow the same stuff in business and in life and in life and in business. I really appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you sharing so many stories that they're just very clear takeaways. The stories piece to it, you know, you being sort of the person that inspired us at Powder Keg to create this stories platform that we're launching uh, this fall uh, and being our first beta tester on that uh, has been hugely, hugely helpful. And I uh, hope we can talk more about that on future episodes. But I, um, I'm curious to know, like, why do you think sharing stories as entrepreneurs or as technologists uh, is important. Yeah, sure. So I started writing mine, as you know, it's, um, that I was looking at, um, you know, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and it's like at times they could probably see my job and be like, you seem to just go into this treehouse and stay in there for a couple hours and not really seem like, no, like I'm actually doing work in there to be able You're to make You're talking about a literal treehouse. A literal treehouse. So that's where I like to do a lot of my brainstorm thinking. So like, how can I start documenting the process of what it took to be able to get to the business to this point and then hopefully beyond? Um, so that way, uh, if anything were to happen to me or anything great happens to the business and there's not something tangible for them to really be able to see, what, uh, you know, what are the takeaways they can actually learn from? This is actually what it took to be able to get it to here. Um, And then as I was writing it, it was really like, wow, there's just, I would love to be able to be reading this about other entrepreneurs that are a stage or two ahead of where I am. Unfortunately, you really just don't get too many of those stories. Um, And that's where kind of the idea kind of came from of 99% of entrepreneurs journeys are going to be similar to what I'm going through. Um, We all face the same kind of journey piece to it. But when it actually comes to motivational journeys that entrepreneurs have had, you're talking about, you know, your Zuckerbergs and your Mark Cubans. And those are amazing stories. Um, But, you know, for 99.9%, it's kind of like hearing like, oh, well, if you're trying to get wealthy, you wouldn't be wanting to read a book about the person who hit the lottery. And so if you're wanting to be able to learn about the journey of entrepreneurship, 
reading about these people who have achieved at that level, they're such outliers into, um, so hope for it, strive for it. But what can you learn from actually the real journeys of the 99.9% entrepreneurs? And so, you know, in mentors, you're always looking for people who are one step or two steps ahead of you that you can really learn the most from, where they're not so distant from where you are that they can relate to you and you can relate to them and you can actually propel yourself forward. And then hopefully you catch up and you find somebody else who's one to you know, two steps above you. Um, so I think that getting a, um, a capability of having founders sharing stories, that means there's more access to people finding the right uh, founder story that's two levels ahead of where they are that they can really relate to and learn from um, to make them better in their own journey. Um, so that's kind of how that whole thing kind of got started. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you shared that with us. Um, Scott, if people want to find out more about you or about Perk, where should they go? Uh, Perk.com would be the best place to learn about us. P-E-R-Q. dot com. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and um, that would be the best place to learn about the company. And uh, my email is shill at Perk. Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at BizGamer, B-I-Z Gamer. Um, but those would be the best places. I just want to say thanks again, Scott. Anything else you want to uh, say or share before we sign off? Um, you know. Entrepreneurship's an amazing game. It's uh, find a way to get yourself into it um, and then uh, embrace the uh, challenge, embrace the opportunity. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have any thoughts or feedback on the conversation with Scott, let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups.